Good morning, everybody. My name is Shane uh, Bonham. I am one of the elders here at River Oaks. Um, I'd like to welcome all of our visitors here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning, verses 15 through 29. Uh, let me pray before we begin. Lord, thank you for a beautiful day uh, that you've given us, your grace and your mercy for bringing us here, and I pray that uh, you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see and that we may hear the glory of Jesus Christ as we go through this passage. In his name we pray, amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in this, uh, verse 15. He says, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than ten rulers who are in the in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. <clears throat> so, when I started looking at this a few weeks ago uh, to study for preaching today, I, I was joking with Chris a few weeks ago. I said, you all trying to get me killed? Because yeah. Jill, uh, who does a great job um, in Buster Heart, she's always stuck with me. I'm always the, usually, she's the music person and I'm the one preaching. She's always stuck with me because she's very organized and she does a great job. And she'll call me on Tuesday and say, hey, what are you thinking? And I'm like, yeah. I probably won't think anything until about Saturday, 8.30 at night. But she was like, so what do you think, uh, what are you kind of thinking about this, any kind of themes coming through? And I was like, well, women are bad. <laughs> That's all I had by Tuesday. <laughs> so, yeah, I felt like, uh, you know, the live cereal commercial when we were kids, the two kids, he's like, hey, what are you eating? What's that? Oh, it's some cereal supposed to be good for you. Here, you try it. I'm not trying it. You try it. Hey, let's give it to Mikey. So it's like, Art and Chris are in the back. Hey, what, what's this turn about? I don't know. Something bad about women. Here, you preach it. I ain't preaching it. You preach it. 
We'll just give it to the village idiot and let him preach it. So here we are. But thank the Lord for his grace, and I think he's uh, kind of made it a little clearer to me here. So I want to start, uh, because when I, when I read this and I'm, I was studying this, I am reminded of uh, the Greek mythology story of Sisyphus. Have you heard of, not syphilis, Sisyphus. <laughs> Sisyphus. Have you heard of, do you guys know the, the story of Sisyphus? <laughs> See, Art messed me up because I told him last night and he, and he said syphilis and so it's, all, it's in my brain. I can't get it out. So Sisyphus, the story goes that he was, content, he was condemned to uh, uh, an eternity of rolling a boulder up a mountain only to watch it roll back down when he'd almost get to the top. And he, would, he had to do, he was condemned for an eternity to do that. And so Think about the endless frustration of that and the endless effort and frustration to get it and you're almost there and it falls back down for an eternity. This is, I think, Solomon in our passage. And so what I aim to show is the endless search and the endless problem and the eternal solution. So Solomon is frustrated we can see that in his language. He's failing to find wisdom. He's been searching, and he can't find it. He's been searching and searching to try to find the meaning of this vain life or this hevel life that he's talked about so much, but he's failing. It's like he gets that rock up to the top of the mountain, but it keeps rolling back down. And so you can see frustration coming out in his words. Um, and what helped me to understand this passage, because when you look at it, it's kind of like uh, verses are like shot in with a shotgun, and they kind of go. But what helped me was to group 15 and 21 together uh, as one section. And so I'd like to go uh, through that first part with you this morning. Uh, so in verse 15, he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so this is, this is a problem that he has seen. You have a righteous man who's perishing in his righteousness, and then you have this wicked guy who's prospering and has a, a longer life. And so he comes up with a solution. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And so uh, I look at that, and at first thought, I'm like, how, how could you be too righteous, or how could you be too holy? That doesn't, I'm not sure if that makes sense. So I, what is he talking about? And the answer is verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So evidently, they are both a danger, this righteousness that he's talking about, and obviously the foolishness. Now, the foolishness is easy for us to see, but the righteousness is a little, it doesn't make as much sense. But he says the fear of the Lord um, causes you to come out from both of those errors. Another key is, in verse 15, he says, his righteousness and his evil doing. And so what I think he is saying is he's talking about self-righteousness, a righteousness that we think that we have on our own. Uh, 
I agree with John Gill. He says this about this section. This is not meant of true and real righteousness, but of a show and ostentation of righteousness, and of such who would be thought to be more righteous and holy than others, and therefore despise those who, as they imagine, do not come up to them, and they're very rigid in their judgment of others. And so he's speaking of self-righteousness. And I'm persuaded further uh, because of verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then also because of verse 21, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And so this is why I think he's speaking of self-righteousness in verse 15. Because there is no righteousness, according to verse 20, uh, there's no righteous man on earth. Uh, and, and 21, when you think that you are righteous and you think that you are all that, he says, think about how many times you have cursed others. So again, it's, his argument is pointing to uh, our self-righteousness. And so we go to 23, and he's still searching. He says, all, I've, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. It's kind of humorous to... If you just think about that, like think about you sitting in your chair and, and you're saying, you know, I'm just going to be wise. Like, how is that going to happen? I mean, are you just, it, how, if you find that answer, if you can figure that out, let me know. Uh, it doesn't happen. It was, he says, it's far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So he can't find it. And then he says in verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And so he's searching, he's searching, and the only thing he finds is something more bitter than death. He's searching for wisdom, and all he gets is something that's more bitter than death. And he's talking about the woman whose heart is snares and nets. And so in an immediate context... You think about Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so in that immediate text, uh, context, he's got a lot of experience um, in that department. So if you look at 1 Kings, uh, I'll read, it, I'll read a, a section for you. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it kind of gives, it kind of shows uh, how Solomon was led astray by all of these women that he had. Uh, it says that he loved many foreign women. He even uh, had the daughter of Pharaoh and all these Moabites and Ammonites. And, um, and he, he married these women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He didn't heed God's warning. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And so God says that Solomon went after all of these other gods, and he made altars for all of his wives, and worshiping 
the uh, gods of his of his wives, and they turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord as God. And so, in the immediate context, we see, yeah, Solomon. That's what he's talking about. There is these women have have um, bound his his heart with snares and nets, and basically handcuffed his hands together. But I also think he's speaking of a wider scope, a broader scope. Um, many times in Scripture, um, you will see the figurative language of, of uh, idolatry spoken of as a woman. And you will also see, ladies, so don't throw rocks at me yet, that many times in the Bible, wisdom are portrayed, or, or women are portrayed as very wise. So there is both. Um, but in Proverbs chapter 2, I'm thinking on this wider context that I think he's speaking of in, Proverbs, or in Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, Solomon is encouraging us to search out for wisdom. Why? So that you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go after her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. And then another example would be in Proverbs chapter 7. He says, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And you can read the rest of that of that uh, proverb chapter 7 and you'll see that what he's talking about is he's using that figurative language of a of of a woman that's leading him away from God. And many times you'll see in in the uh, scriptures that when we when God's people are pursuing other idols what does he call us? He calls us whores. And so we are committing adultery, spiritual adult, adultery with God when we forsake him and we pursue uh, these other things that can give us no satisfaction. And so this is why I think he's, he's not only in a, in a um, narrow context speaking about the things that he has found in his life with his 1,000 wives, but he's also broader um, speaking of the folly and the foolishness of pursuing idols other than God. Uh, a great example, another great example is Revelation chapter 18 when God speaks about the fall of Babylon Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so he's using that women as a figurative language to show us the uh, harlotry of God's people. And so it's obvious, the obvious thing when, I, when, you, when you read this in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, when he's talking about the woman who's snares and, and, and um, nets and fetters, it's very easy to think, it's, at least um, it doesn't seem hard to, to go to sexual temptation. He's speaking of sexual temptation. And our culture is full of that. We all know that. With the, all the computer, we can see all kinds of crazy stuff and the TV and so on and so forth. But what about the not so obvious? 
So maybe a question that we should ask ourselves is, what tempts me to abandon God? What is it that draws me away from God? What is it that tempts me? Maybe it's, it could be money or my job or fear or the despair of trying to figure out this life and not being able to do it. Leading me away from God. Clinging to idols that can never satisfy. That would be good growth group questions because there's very obvious idols that we can think of, but there's, there's some very subtle ones because our hearts are so deceptive. They, they cover those up. And so maybe discuss those in your growth group. He says he sought repeatedly but did not find one man among a thousand. Or he found only one man among a thousand. And in the immediate context, I can think he probably knew Nathan. Nathan was his father David's counselor, the prophet Nathan. And we all know that Nathan told David, you are the man. And, and so in the immediate context, he, he's probably thinking of Nathan. Um, and in the immediate context, all the thousand women he knew, he hasn't found one of them. And obviously none of those wives and concubines of his led him to the Lord. They all led him away. What did he find? What did Solomon find? In verse 29, see this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. And this is, I think this is crucial to understanding this passage, is the word schemes. If you notice, it's mentioned three times from verse 25 down. Three times, schemes. And so it's important to understand Solomon's endless search for wisdom, the schemes being mentioned three times. And so the reason Solomon is frustrated. The reason he's like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the mountain and it's, it's just fruitless, it's pointless. The reason why he's frustrated in his pursuit of wisdom is because he's looking in the wrong place. He's been looking in the wrong place. So what do I mean? Verse 29, it says, see this alone. I found that God made man upright. That word for man is the word Adom. Or Adam. Oh, there's a clue. God made Adam upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. This is pretty cool. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to, to be desired to what? Make one wise. Hmm. What was the temptation? The temptation was God is not a good father. He is not wise. He does not love you. He does not have your best interest at heart. He cannot be trusted. That was the temptation of Adam and Eve. You can be as God. You can be wiser to God. And since that moment, you and I have come up with all kinds of schemes to get out from underneath the rule and the reign of God. That's the key to understanding 
Solomon's frustration. He's been looking in the wrong place. He's been trying to find wisdom with human wisdom. He's been trying to find the meaning of life with human wisdom. And it's very interesting in in the uh, Greek mythology of Sisyphus. He was condemned, he was punished because of his self-aggrandizing and his craftiness or his deceit. That was why he was punished. And you think about us and our schemes. We We condemn ourselves to frustration and futility of this life. Why? Because we chose to turn from God and pursue our own way. I'm wiser than God. He doesn't need to tell me. I'm wiser. And so now I am in this futile life, pushing up my futile rock with my futile effort, and all you find is frustration. And so we have many schemes to avoid God, and that's, that's all the way back to the garden. And so that's why I think that uh, schemes is very important to understanding this passage and to understanding Solomon's frustration, that he can never find wisdom. He's frustrated and he's failing to find wisdom. He's failing to find meaning in life because he's looking in the wrong place. He is searching by using human wisdom. That's why he's frustrated in his search. So when you think of wisdom, what kind of picture do you have in your mind? When you think wisdom, when you you see Proverbs say, pursue wisdom, or uh, what do you think of? I usually think of like some kind of uh, outline or a plan or some kind of template, some kind of steps I can follow. That's usually what I think of right off the top of my head when I think pursue wisdom. And you think about this, what about a schematic? What's a schematic? Any electricians in here? Builders? Blueprints? What does that teach you to follow and do the right procedures, right? Think about all of our schemes. So we kind of tend to think of wisdom as a template or a step or some kind of outline or some kind of schematic to get me where I want to go. But what is wisdom? Is that really what wisdom is? There's clues in our passage in verse 18. What is it that that keeps us from from both the self-righteousness and the foolishness? It's the fear of God. There's a clue. And then look in verse 26, what, keep, what helps us to escape uh, the woman whose heart is snares and nets? He who pleases God. Well, how can, how can we ever please God? Because verse 20 says, there is no one righteous. So what is he saying? What is wisdom? How can I get wisdom? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Is wisdom a template? Is it a step? Is it a program? Is it a schematic? What is it? Why has Solomon been so frustrating in finding it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Is wisdom a formula? Is wisdom a template? No, wisdom is a person. Wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wisdom. But our schemes, what is our natural disposition is to reject Christ, which leads us to futility. This is why Solomon was so frustrated in his pursuit, because he was trying to find it by human wisdom. He was looking in the wrong place, because wisdom is not steps, it's not schemes, it's not an outline. It is Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. And as Solomon says in our passage, God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. We want to be free. I want to be free of God. That's all the way back in the garden. That was the temptation, to be free of this unrighteous God who is not a good father. I like those... uh, uh, the reality shows about the uh, living off the land and you know off the grid. You guys watch those? Those are I don't watch a lot of TV, uh, but I like to occasionally watch those. Um, those guys living out in the woods, you know, in Alaska and doing all that. It's like, yeah, that's like manly stuff, and you know, got the flannel shirt and beard. And I tried to grow a beard, and my wife made me shave it off. <sighs> Futility. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that just appeals to me. I like that. Being from Alaska, that was, you know, all the outdoors was wild and free. I want to be free. I want to get my bike. It's right across the country. Be free. Um, but if you think about it, yeah, you might be living off the grid, but you know what? You still need gas for your generator. Hmm. You need gas for that chainsaw that you're using to make your, cut down the trees to make your log cabin, right? You need bullets to shoot the animals so you can live off. You might even go old school with the musket, but guess what? You still need lead to make the balls. You need animals to come by. You can't, you know, if your nearest animal is 400 miles, you're pretty much dead meat. You're not going to eat. You need wood for your fire. You need water. You need all these things. You're not really free when you think about it. We, sometimes we have a dream of, I want, just want my own land. I get a thousand acres, you know, to sit on my porch and shoot my guns and just be free. But you think about it, don't pay your taxes for a couple years and you let me know how that works out because that land ain't yours. Yeah, you bought it, but it still is not yours. You don't pay your taxes, they take it. Just ask... or. You might even pay your taxes, and they'll still take your land. Just ask those people when TVA made the dams. You're not free. There's no such thing as freedom. We think that we are free, but in reality, we are slaves. We think that if we are free from God, that we can finally be free but we became we become slaves to something else. That's the way God made us. We are made worshipers. Either we worship God and are slaves to God, or we worship other things and we are slaves to those things. There's no way around it. We are not free. We become slaves to money or sex or fame or family or food or even religion and asceticism. 
Think about when you're in your growth groups, think of, think of all the things. Because, I mean, some of them are very easy to think about. But dig down deep and kind of think, man, I never really thought about this, but I'm a slave to this kind of... Maybe I'm a slave to gossip. Maybe I'm a slave to trying to uplift myself through reading my Bible more, whatever it may be. We become slaves to the frustration of trying to find and figure out the meaning of this fallen world. We're not free. Job had a similar experience as Solomon, didn't he? In Job chapter 28, he says, But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. Where can wisdom be found? It will never be found outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is a person. In Job chapter 33, which ties us back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, when in Ecclesiastes 7, he's trying to find that one man among a thousand. Well, in Job 33, Elihu says to Job, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to a man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all of these things to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the lights of life. And so he's talking about the Redeemer. What satisfied Job in the end? Did God ever answer Job's question of why? We all know the horrible things that happened to Job. Did God ever say, set him down and say, Job, this is why I did what I did. Now, do you, do you understand why I did this? He doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? What does God do? God gives Job himself. He shows Job his glory. Remember those four chapters where he tells Job to pull up his pants like a man? What is God doing? He's showing him his glory. And that was enough for Job. Job was satisfied in the glory of God. He didn't answer his question why he showed him himself. What is the only thing that can satisfy us? What's the only thing that can satisfy our longing hearts in this fallen world, in this broken world? The only thing that can satisfy is God giving us himself. God opening our eyes so that we may see the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will satisfy the human heart. We've condemned ourselves to the futility of Sisyphus. But the interesting thing about Sisyphus is he was condemned for an eternity. He has 
no hope. His eternity is just nothing but hopelessness. But our God is so merciful and so gracious that though we deserve to have eternal hopelessness, God in his love and grace sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins so that we might have eternal satisfaction in him. God in his amazing grace has not left us to hopelessness. This frustration that Solomon is experiencing that we're reading in these pages, you know it's actually good. Why is it good? What does the struggle do? What is the struggle that we all face? Why is it good? It's meant to release us from the bondage of self-reliance and cause us to look to the only one who can satisfy our soul, the true wisdom, Jesus Christ. Paul Tripp says it this way, we all think that we are wiser than we actually are, stronger than we are, more righteous than we really are. It is not our weakness that keeps us from Christ. It's our delusions of strength that keep us from Christ. And you think about even those who grow up in church, Think about delusions of strength. You might think like, oh yeah, you think like big, strong, whatever. But also think this way. What if you grew up in church all your life and you read your Bible and you do this and do this and do this? Does that make you right before God? No. What is the only thing that makes you right before God? It's faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, in him dying and paying for your sins and atoning for your sins and giving you his righteousness. My righteousness does not come from anything I do. It comes from him. It's an outside righteousness that I could never find, that I could never work. But our hearts delude us of our strength. Think about how many, think about it in, or talk about it in the growth group, how many, all, all the different ways like, the sneaky ways that our hearts deceive us into believing that we really are stronger than what we think we are. In Acts chapter 17, uh, this is why I picked this for the call to worship. In Acts chapter 17, verse the last part there, 27, what, um, he says, the God made everything, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, I was thinking, have you ever lost anything and you can't find it? Like in the shop when I'm working, I might, I don't know, lose a screw or something. And, um, you know, it's loud in there or whatever. And I'm, I, I didn't hear it bounce, but I think, I think it kind of went over there. And so you're looking around, and I've been out there for 10, 20, 30 minutes, like, oh, where is this thing? Where is this thing? And think it's over there, and, and think it's over here. And then I'll just be, I'll, I'll, I'll give up, and I'll be like, man, I'll just look, and I'll stand there, and I'll look down, and it's right there, and it's been there the whole time. You ever done that? That's what God's saying. You're searching. You're doing all this. You're going all over here and doing all this. I'm right here. Christ is the answer to endless searching. He's the answer to the endless 
problem that we have, namely our unrighteousness. When Jesus Christ captures our hearts and he makes us his, what effect does that have? If we go back through our our passage here, what does that have? What does that have on the one who is overly righteous, self-righteous? When you are when you realize the grace of God in, in saving you and revealing his glory to you, you understand that you have no righteousness of your own. I cannot be good enough. I will never be good enough. It's Christ's righteousness that I have. You won't be foolish. You'll have the fear of God, which leads to humility, which, which leads to the understanding that we are not righteous. It is only through Christ that I am righteous. In verse 19, wisdom gives strength. Jesus Christ gives us strength more than 10 rulers who are in a city. In verses 21 to 22, do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> when I, I, read, I just think of marriage when I read these things. Uh, my, my wife doesn't... Um, Criticize me. I mean, she very rarely has any reason to criticize me anyways. <laughs> but when she does, okay, you know, I don't, I try not to take it to heart because I know that she's just mistaken. <laughs> she's just, she's criticizing another man, a man who she thought that I was. I mean, think about it. Do you, do you have a picture of someone in your mind when he, when he says, when the warning is don't be self-righteous. Can you picture that guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen, yeah. How about the guy that, can you, can you picture someone that, that does the cursing behind your back? You got that picture in your mind? Everybody got one? Anybody not have one? Everybody's got one? Good. If that picture is not you, then you're not thinking wisely. What, is, what do we do in our schemes? I'm pointing at you and you. I had a coach that would tell you, when you point the finger, you got three more pointing back at you. I want a scheme. I want a blame shift. So the main picture of a self-righteous guy and a cursing guy and all that is, should be my face. Christ is delivery from traps. You see, the women weren't the problem. Yeah, they weren't worshipers of God, but were they really Solomon's problem? Maybe. No, I'm just kidding. What was the problem? Solomon's heart. When I am enticed, it is because I have lost sight of the glory of Christ. I say, wow, this is better than Jesus. I have totally lost sight of the glory of Christ. That's what happens when I am enticed. The, it's not like, you know, uh, Satan is fishing and he's got the lure and he's like... The lure is already in here. I don't need to bite a lure. It's already in here. It's my heart. And only Christ can remove that. When Christ saves us and he gives us himself, this is what, and this is how we please God, and we can escape things. Like we have the, the ability to do this through the power of Christ, escape these fetters and these chains. You think about this, the thousand, he says, I found uh, 
one man among a thousand. But I've not found a, a woman out of all these thousand. Think about this. This is cool. We were talking about it in the, Chris's office earlier. Not found a thousand women. You know what? We are the thousand women. There wasn't a one of us that was worthy. And yet, Jesus married us. Solomon is at an end to his search for wisdom. He's at the end of his rope, so to speak. What is he pointing to? A wisdom that is far greater than we could ever conceive in our schemes. And we have many schemes. He's pointing to a wisdom that is not a template to make my life better or to make my life more comfortable. He's pointing to a wisdom that is not a formula or a schematic. He's pointing to a wisdom that is a product of God's nearness. He's pointing us to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can never find wisdom through my research or my experiences or anything else. Wisdom is a person. The only way that I will find true wisdom is through relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the wisdom that we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that though we are unworthy uh, and that we have many schemes to avoid you, to try to get out from underneath your loving rule and reign over our lives, Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins, um, to give us a place at your table. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.